I need to make a correction to last week's class. There were two waves of exiles last week. The first one was in 605 BCE when Nebuchadnezzar first invaded Judah, took all the royal class folks captive, and Jehoiakim became a vassal of the king of Babylon. Then, six or seven years later, in 597 BCE, Nebuchadnezzar attacked again and took captive all the officers, fighting men, the upper-class craftsmen. It's like 10,000 people. He kind of likes working his way down from the top. And so that after that second one in 597, he left only the poor people in the land. And that's when he set up Zedekiah as a puppet king. I told you that Daniel and his friends were in the second wave of exiles, but I misspoke. I spoke the wrong date. I didn't tell you second wave, but I said the wrong date. They were in the first wave in 605 BCE. Everything else I told you about the attacks and the events and Daniel and everything was correct. I just put Daniel in the wrong group of exiles and I didn't want to leave it out there. So here's how that looks on our chart of kings. Nebuchadnezzar attacks near the end of Jehoiakim's reign, takes that first wave of royal exiles, then comes back about seven years later, right after Jehoiakim dies, and attacks Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiakim, with an N. When Nebuchadnezzar leaves the second time, he sets up Jehoiakim's 21-year-old uncle, Mattaniah, as king, and he changes Mattaniah's name to Zedekiah. The former king, Jehoiakim himself, gets carried off to Babylon along with all those 10,000 exiles, who include a 25-year-old priest named Ezekiel. Interestingly, at this point, the prophet Jeremiah gets left behind in Judah among the poor. And that gives us like some idea of his living conditions at this point. So I need to back up a couple of years and tell you something that happened around 604 BCE, about a year after that first wave of exiles was taken to Babylon. Daniel is, and his friends are still in that three-year-long Babylonian cultural boot camp thing that the, that Nebuchadnezzar was putting them through. And it's nighttime, and King Nebuchadnezzar has been woken up by a dream that scares him to death. He calls in all his wise men, his magicians, his astrologers, his wizards, everyone he can think of who might explain this dream to him. And they say, okay. Tell us your dream and we will interpret it for you. But Nebuchadnezzar is smarter than that. He says to them, no, you tell me the dream. Then I'll know that when you interpret it, you know what you're talking about and you'll receive great honor and riches. But if you can't tell me the dream itself, I'll know you're all frauds and you will all be cut into pieces and your homes destroyed. The sages protest bitterly and beg the king to tell them the dream, saying, no one can do what you ask, only the gods. But the king is enraged and issues a decree that all sages in the entire kingdom are to be cut into pieces. And guess who is included in that class of people? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
even though they're only wise men in training. When Daniel hears about the decree, he asks the executioner why Nebuchadnezzar is doing such a terrible thing. And Arioch, the executioner, tells him about the king's dream. Well, immediately, Daniel asks for a short delay before he must tell the king his dream and its interpretation. Then Daniel goes home and tells his friends to join him in asking for mercy from God. They pray that God will reveal the dream and its meaning to Daniel. And God answers their prayers. During the night, God gives Daniel the dream as well as giving him understanding of the dream. There's a beautiful passage in Daniel chapter 2 with Daniel's prayer of thanksgiving to God. You can imagine the relief, right? The next day, Daniel hurries back to the executioner and tells him to hold back on the executions and instead to bring him before the king to reveal the dream and its meaning. Of course, Arioch rushes Daniel into the king's presence, and Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that no wise man, no magician, or wizard, or diviner, or astrologer, or anyone can tell him his dream. But there is one God alone who reveals such mysteries. And Daniel proceeds to tell the king his dream. He says, you saw in your dream a huge statue, great and shining brilliantly. Its appearance was awe-inspiring. Its head was gold. The chest and arms were silver. And its torso and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron. But its feet were a weird mixture of iron and clay. And as you watched a stone not one that had been cut and finished by human hands, but a, a raw stone struck the statue on its feet and shattered them. And then the entire statue crumpled and blew away like so much chaff in the wind. And the stone became a mountain that filled all the earth. That is your dream, O king. God has given the entire world over to you. God has given you power and glory and might. You, O king, are the head of gold. But after you will arise a lesser kingdom to rule the world. And after that, a third kingdom, the one of bronze, will rise to rule the earth. Then a fourth kingdom will come, the kingdom of iron, it will be strong, smashing and shattering all the other kingdoms, but it will split. It won't hold together, just like iron and clay cannot be mixed. And in the days of those kings, notice the potentially end time wording there. In those days, God will establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed or overcome. It will bring the other kingdoms to an end, and it alone will stand forever. Then King Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face before Daniel and gives him many gifts and makes him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and puts him in charge of all the sages and magicians and other wise men. Daniel ends up staying in the royal court 
while his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are appointed as administrators under him. Now, that's quite a story, and one you might be looking at with some skepticism, especially since the story just before it said that Daniel didn't enter into the king's service until after he had completed his three years of cultural boot camp. So, you know, you can take this how you want, and we'll do a deeper dive in our breakout groups. But for now, let's leave Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar and go back to Judah to see what's happening with Jeremiah and the folks who are left there. Back in Judah, the Lord shows Jeremiah two baskets of figs sitting in front of the temple. One basket has very good figs, and the other basket has figs that are so bad, they're inedible. And the Lord says to Jeremiah, the good figs are the exiles whom I sent to Babylon. I will watch over them and will plant them and will bring them back here to this land. I will give them a heart to know me. They will be my people and I will be their God. They will turn to me with their whole heart. But I will deal with the bad figs like Zedekiah and his officials and others that survive in Jerusalem or escape to Egypt. They will be despised wherever they go. I will pursue them with sword and famine and plague until they are gone from this land. Now, at this point, if I'm Jeremiah, I'm saying, well, what am I, chopped liver? Why did I get left behind? Will I be pursued with all these terrible things? And of course, the answer is that even though Jeremiah is a good fig, The Lord needs him to hang in there and speak truth to power, to let the bad figs know exactly what's about to happen and why. Then the Lord tells Jeremiah, I want you to make a yoke and put it on your neck. Then use King Zedekiah's messengers to send word to the kings of Edom, Moab, Ammon, and Phoenicia. Now notice here, the Lord is speaking to the pagan nations surrounding Judah. He's trying to help them survive. This is just a small glimpse into their stories, the stories we don't hear in the Hebrew Bible. And notice that the Lord has a relationship with them and that the Lord is sending Jeremiah's message to them. Here's the message Jeremiah is to send to these foreign nations. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. By my power, I made the earth and everything in it, and I will give it to whomever I choose. I am giving you all to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, until the time comes for his dynasty to fall. So serve him and wear his yoke, and you will live. Otherwise, you will die by the sword and plague and famine. Do not listen to lying prophets who say otherwise. The Lord continues. Tell this also to the priests and people of Jerusalem. Anything in the temple and the palace that Nebuchadnezzar has not already carried off will be carried off the next time he comes. And all the temple furnishings and palace riches 
will stay in Babylon until the day I come for them and bring them back here to Jerusalem. The items listed in Jeremiah 27 as still remaining in the temple at this point are only the bigger bronze items, the pillars, the huge bronze basin there that you see that's called the sea, and a few other movable stands and stuff. But nothing in the list in Jeremiah as having been left is gold. So I feel sure that anything gold, including the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant, has long since been carried off. For one thing, if it remained at this point, it would have been listed, and it is not. It's interesting that the Lord has apparently let pagans come in and defile his mercy seat. I wonder if that's because of the Lord's sorrow over being rejected by his people. Clearly, God's presence has left the Holy of Holies, so you know that the end is near. Well, this whole yoke thing and using the king's own messengers to send these messages to all the surrounding kings leads to a showdown between Jeremiah and a more politically correct prophet named Hananiah. Hananiah says, no, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Within two years, I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon and bring our rightful king Jehoiakim back from exile. All the other exiles and all the things that have been stolen from us will be returned. Well, of course, all the priests and all the people are standing there holding their breath to see what Jeremiah will say to that. And Jeremiah says, amen, I hope so. But remember, every prophet that has come before us has prophesied exactly what I am prophesying and not what you are prophesying. Enraged, Hananiah yanks the yoke off of Jeremiah's neck and breaks it, saying to the people, this is what the Lord says. This is how I will break Nebuchadnezzar's yoke within two years. So Jeremiah just turns and leaves. But afterwards, the Lord tells him to go confront Hananiah personally and tell him, you may have broken my wooden yoke, but the Lord is going to give you a yoke of iron. The Lord did not send you, and yet you have talked the people into believing your lies. Therefore, the Lord says, that this very year you will die. And two months later, Hananiah dies. With all this, you think everything Jeremiah has to say is limited to doom and gloom. And chapter 30 does start out that way. Every man will hold his stomach as if he were a woman in labor. That day, notice the end time marker, that day will be a time of anguish and distress for Jacob. That is verse seven. It is super famous. The quote, time of Jacob's distress, end quote, is usually considered by Christians to be synonymous with the end time tribulation. But that is a New Testament era concept. For Jews, times of tribulation have abounded throughout history and continue to this day. 
in this class, we're looking at this from a Christian perspective. We are, but it's important to remember we've got a particular pair of lenses on. Then the Lord says, in that day, I will free my people from the yoke of their oppressors. I will raise up David, their king for them, and they will serve the Lord, their God. Now, that's a pretty astounding statement. When we read that in English, it sounds as if in the end times, the Lord is going to resurrect King David. But that's not what that word for raise up means. It's not the Hebrew word for resurrection. In fact, the Hebrew word for resurrection isn't in the Hebrew Bible at all. The word used here is the word used for raising up a prophet or a shepherd or raising a war cry, or a battle axe, or even building a foundation. The wording is directly linked, I think, to what the Lord told Jeremiah back in chapter 23, verse 5. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. That's a, I'm reading out of the NIV right there. So see how the prophecies in chapter 30 and in chapter 23 are the same prophecy. It's just that the one in chapter 23 gives us more detail. It clarifies the whole, what it means to raise up David, their king. And it uses the branch language to alert us that this new king will be a descendant of David, not the old King David resurrected. This is really important to keep in mind. We're about to get to another prophet who talks about David again as if he comes back in person. So we'll need to keep this perspective from Jeremiah in mind. This future descendant of David is called by the name of his ancestor. He fills the shoes of his ancestor David. We're in full-on pretzel time here where past, present, and future are mingling. The other highlight among all the beautiful promises of joy and dancing in chapters 30 and 31 is the passage beginning in chapter 31, verse 31, talking about a new covenant. I'm quoting this most most of this verbatim from the NIV here with just a little bit of paraphrasing. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. It will not be like the old one. This time I will put my law in their minds and will write it on their hearts. No longer will they teach each other, quote, know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. How beautiful is that? And then there's this really great passage stuck at the very end of chapter 31. It's a verse most people will skip right by, but you all will realize its significance. The Lord says, the days are surely coming when Jerusalem will be rebuilt from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate to the hill Garab, which scholars think is down here in the southwest somewhere, to Goah which scholars think is over here on the southeastern side, to the horse gate. If you notice, 
these dimensions go from the west side of the temple complex here in gold all the way around the city to the east side of the temple complex. It would encompass the Valley of Hinnom, where child sacrifices took place, and the Kidron Valley, where remains of idols have always been thrown. And the Lord says, the rebuilt city will encompass the whole valley of dead bodies and ashes and all the land as far as the Kidron Valley. All of it shall be sacred to the Lord. Never again will my city be uprooted or overthrown. Now think what this means. The Lord is going to make sacred all of the ashes of all of the worst sins of all of the people throughout all of the history of Jerusalem. Our God can redeem anything, and our God will redeem it. The Lord has spoken it, and in pretzel time, as we say, it is done. This is one of the most beautiful promises in the Bible. But if you did not know the history of these two valleys, you would not realize the significance of mercy expressed in this passage. So all this is happening about four years into Zedekiah's reign. From here on out, the story will shift back and forth between the remnant of folks left in Judah and the thousands who are now in exile in Babylon. During this part of Zedekiah's reign, envoys are going back and forth between the two kingdoms. Letters are exchanged. King Zedekiah even visits Babylon. So Jeremiah, of course, gets in on the letter writing. He sends some of his dire predictions in the diplomatic pouch. And he's got plenty of dire predictions to choose from. In fact, he's got five chapters of woes beginning in chapter 47. The first three chapters are woes on Israel's historical enemies. You'll recognize them, Philistia, Edom, Moab, Ammon, Aram. Then there's a woe on Elam, which is a country east of Babylon that probably assisted Babylon in the attacks on Israel. But two whole chapters of woes are devoted to Babylon itself. The woes predict intense suffering destruction, and the eternal collapse of Babylon. Jeremiah writes that part about Babylon down on a scroll and tucks it into the messenger bag that goes to Babylon when King Zedekiah visits. Remember Baruch, Jeremiah's faithful scribe and assistant? Well, it turns out that Baruch's brother, Sariah, is a staff officer of the kings and is going to accompany King Zedekiah on the trip. So Jeremiah tells Sariah to read the scroll out loud and announce in front of all the people, the Lord will destroy this place. No one will ever live in it again, not even animals. It will be desolate for all time. Jeremiah instructs Sariah to then tie the scroll to a stone and throw it into the Euphrates River and say, just like that, Babylon will sink and rise no more and her people will be wiped out. 
It doesn't say if Sariah reads this scroll of woe to the general public in Babylon or just to the exiled community, but I imagine he only reads it to the exiles. In chapter 29, another one of Jeremiah's letters is copied verbatim into the text. The letter is remarkable because in it, he tells the exiles that for the time being, they need to assimilate into the Babylonian culture. You'd think the Lord would tell them to keep themselves separate, right? But no, the Lord tells them to submit to Nebuchadnezzar put down roots in Babylon, marry into the Babylonian culture, and do whatever they can to seek the welfare of the province. The letter says it will be 70 years before the Lord will bring the exiles back to Judah. So for this 70-year period, The exiles are to build Babylon up and assimilate. But after 70 years, the exiles will return to Judah and Babylon will end up being destroyed forever. Now, this is the second time we've run across a prophecy about the 70 years in Jeremiah. First, it was in chapter 25, and now it's in the letter in chapter 29. So this prophecy is a big deal. It will be interesting to see how it all works out. I I find it very interesting in particular that the Lord tells them to intermarry into the Babylonian culture. That's just like so different than what the Lord has told them in the past. So then comes one of the most famous passages in the Bible. It's part of this same letter about putting down roots in Babylon. It is God's promise to his people who are in exile. I'm quoting from the New Revised Standard Version here, the NRSV, chapter 29, verses 11 through 14. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek for me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now, remember that the exiles include the upper classes, those of royal birth, the priests, the prophets, and the leaders of Judah. And those guys have been telling the exiles that they are the true prophets of God, and they've been making stuff up to tell the people and claiming it is from the Lord, just like Hananiah has been doing back in Judah. Jeremiah writes, Don't pay any attention to the prophets who are there with you in Babylon. They are telling you lies. Three guys in particular have been a real problem. Prophesying lies, committing adultery, like literal literal physical adultery, and generally leading the people astray. Their names are Ahav, Zedekiah, not the king, obviously, not, not the king, and a guy named Shemaiah. Jeremiah calls out Ahav and Zedekiah in his letter, saying they are prophesying lies and that the Lord is going to deliver them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, who will burn them to death in front of all the exiles. 
Yikes. When Shemaiah hears this letter from Jeremiah, he shoots a letter back to the people in Jerusalem and to the priests who are left in Judah saying, you're supposed to chain up any maniac who acts like a prophet. You're supposed to lock them in the stocks. So why is that crazy Jeremiah still walking around free? And Jeremiah fires a message back saying, because Shemaiah is a false prophet who teaches the people to rebel against the Lord, the Lord will punish him. None of his descendants will survive and he will not live to see all the good things the Lord will do. <laughs> That's a lot of drama, isn't it? Today, we hit the first of Daniel's big prophecies and we need to take a closer look at it in our breakout groups. I know several folks, turn your mics back on. I know several folks have to leave real quick. I hope this was an interesting discussion. Challenging, uh, yeah. Challenging. <laughs> Challenging. I, I, I know Marlene would have loved it if she could have stayed today. I think the consensus of our group was all of this is fascinating stuff, but the significance of it, we have no idea. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Which is fair, because this is just the very, very beginning of something that will become much, much broader and wider um, as we move forward. We'll get a lot more information, if you can think of it like a birth, you know. And so so Daniel actually ends up giving us a, a framework, just scaffolding, doesn't fill in a lot of detail at all. And we already have some of the detail um, by... Bye, Rhonda. By by Rhonda, we we have some of the detail from the prophets that we've just like got in our toolbox that we will be able to throw in in the right places um, when we get to those parts. We'll know where they go. So this is like a great big jigsaw puzzle, and we and Daniel. As we go through Daniel, we will complete the border. That's what this is going to be like. So what I wanted to highlight here, though, was that there is real division, like 50, 50, mm. uh, maybe, maybe more that um, within uh, Christianity, within scholars, between churches, between individuals as to whether Daniel, it, the book of Daniel is prophecy mm. or not. Mm. Well, what does... Um, why does that matter? Good question. I mean, I was in the same group with Woody and we just kind of said, well, we feel like, you know, this is all God inspired word and um, whether it's prophecy or apocalyptic literature and um, that it's all supposed to mean something to us. But what's the difference between whether it's apocalyptic or prophetic? Does that should that have an, uh, an effect on us? Well, and that is actually the answer to your own question is the impact is how does it affect how we act and what we do? Because people who see it as apocalyptic literature read it like a novel. Okay. Oh, you see what I mean? It And it could be all spiritual realm happenings that not really related to us, you know, far off and far away. Hmm. People who are reading it as prophecy are looking to see, is it happening now? When is it happening? Hmm. What is my role in this? 
And it makes a huge difference in worldview and how you treat the world we live in. How you treat people. It's, it, it makes a big difference. Apocalyptic prophecy. <laughs> it is apocalyptic prophecy, actually, you know. But, but, Ross. <laughs> there are people who want to throw the whole book out and say Daniel was just you know, he, he made all this stuff up and you can really see in the story, you can see in his prophecies, how he was actually talking about things that had already happened up until, you know, the time that he knew, you know, 165 BC or so. And then it was just like pure made up after that is, is one real view among people. And then that means we're, we're supposed to ignore it. You know, that's how that they would, they would, I think, challenge hmm. why it's in the Bible, you know? Hmm. Um, okay. Question. Mm-hmm. Why it's said in the, the study guide, the, the, the Jewish Bible puts it with the writings, not with the prophets. Mm-hmm. Why is, what is their reason for that? It's the, it's because of the style of the writing, because it is not written like the prophets, which I tried to, you know, pull out in there. It does not bear the earmarks of any of the prophets that we've read. You know, it just doesn't use the same kind of language. It doesn't use the same kind of imagery. It doesn't speak that consistent. Every prophet we've read has had the same message every time, right? Um, Daniel is like out in left field somewhere, <laughs> you know? but then well, go ahead, Ross. You know, if you follow logic, uh, you know, something you have here, you know, if Jesus refers uh, to Daniel as a prophet and Jesus cannot lie, then Daniel must be a prophet. Well, unless you remember that people who wrote down those gospels were writing it down from memory, you know, but, and Jesus only names Daniel in the Matthew passage, but he uses that quote from Daniel. He tells people to look, people to watch for the quote, abomination of desolation, which we're going to get to in Daniel. It's a specific quote only used in Daniel. It's not used in any of the prophets anywhere else. And Jesus tells them in every single gospel to watch out for that. Well, and then you have the added logic that God says that prophets can be tested by if everything they say becomes true. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, you know, I, I did not want to pass Daniel without letting you know how much of a difference of opinion there is within Christian thinking about this. What so, else? So, so is the is the issue, I mean, Daniel lived in like 600 BCE, right? Yes. So is, that, the, is, is the issue whether the book of Daniel was written actually by Daniel? In like yeah, a, I, I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. The, 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 you know, if you, if you look at this, um, it, it would seem to most scholars, like the person who wrote the book of Daniel lived in 165 BCE, you know, and that, that would make it very interesting because I mean, that's like almost 350 years after <laughs> Daniel lived and, and they're still using his name and, 
and uh, applying these prophecies to his to him. Yes, and that's a thing in the ancient world. They frequently wrote and applied somebody else's famous name to and called themselves that. That is a thing in the ancient world. So Daniel had to, uh, if you believe that it was written in 165, Daniel had to have remained famous for 350 years. Exactly. <laughs> so it was clearly very important. And it was canonized, meaning it was part of the, the holy, you know, holy scrolls, if you will, part of that body of literature almost immediately because because if Jesus referred to it and Jesus lived in you know zero to 30 4 to 30 BCE I mean common era that's a very short window um, for Daniel to have become quote canonized so he was and he was part and he is part of the Hebrew Bible Um, so there are people this would be, you know, mostly people who are in further evangelical, you know, take the Bible literally kind of folks who say it was written by Daniel. It is all prophesied in the future. I don't care how literal it was up until 165. That whole 165 thing is not an argument. Okay. <clears throat> then there's like this vast bot, this big body of scholars who say, no, 165 is an argument. <laughs> and, and they call him pseudo Daniel. They call the author pseudo Daniel because he used Daniel hmm. as a pseudonym. Okay. And, um, and, and so I'm, I'm laying that out there because very often People who teach eschatology, meaning end time prophecies and things, teach from the point of view that everything Daniel said was a pure prophecy, you know, all the way straight through. And I want you to have more context. I'm not saying he's not. I personally, you know, it doesn't matter what I personally believe. I, I think I named, this is a hint. I named my son Daniel. After this, Daniel. <laughs> okay. Well, I have a question. So- Woody's got me thinking. So if Daniel was written 350 years or whatever it was after Daniel lived, it makes sense that the person that wrote it down may not have spoken the same way as the, pro- the pers- people that wrote down the other prophets. Yes. So it would sound different. And I'm wondering, would it make sense that Daniel, the way I'm thinking it might have fallen out is that Daniel was indeed called and a prophet and these stories of Daniel, this time overlap um, in chapters one and two that I pointed out in this lesson where Daniel was a student and he's also boss over the whole province of Babylon, you know, that doesn't really work. Um, that tells me that these stories and legends of Daniel were concurrent in the psyche of the people. You know, these were stories. Daniel was a big deal. Daniel was real. Daniel happened. You know, the person Daniel happened. And I think Daniel did have these apocalyptic dreams and visions that he, right, that he, didn't write down apparently, but that were passed into the collective, you know, um, knowledge 
the, the culture of the exiles. And that I'm thinking that by 165 BC, Daniel is long dead. Somebody sits down and says, these are really, really important. Somebody needs to write this down. And that that person took those stories and adjusted details as that person saw, oh, this prophecy was fulfilled and this is how it happened, you know, and, and not changing, I don't think the core prophecy, you know, the core prophecy is the one we just read about the gold, the, the, the four kingdoms, okay, that is the core prophecy in Daniel, but it, we will find, we will get to more dreams and visions that give more specifics, and I'm guessing that the person who wrote it down added in these details that he knew happened. This is how it actually did happen, you know, up until this point. Do I know that for sure? Heck no. Well, and as, as you said, I mean, in, in your, um, the, the study guide, you know, there's the Hebrew and then, and then it's also an Aramaic. And, and again, that brings out the fact that there's differences because there's not always a Hebrew word for everything or an Aramaic word for everything that we think of, you know, as English. And I think it was Lumar that brought up in our group that, you know, when things are handed down, they get changed, you know, like campfire stories, you know, like the story of the one-armed man. Anyway, <laughs> the one with the hook you know. on your door handle, that one? <laughs> yeah, that one. Oh <laughs> and they get changed all the time, you know. <laughs> I heard but, it as I a mean, guy you know. scraping on top of a train as she went under a tree. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah those. Variations. <laughs> yes, those. So, um, you know, they get, they get um, as you said, they get tweaked and um, to suit the purpose yeah. and to su- suit the times. Yeah. And just... I'm sure that, I mean, and I know there are lots of interpretations as to what all this means um, for now. So, uh, yeah, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't important. That's exactly (laughs) right. To me, it is, it just, it really kind of the way this is happening, as I am envisioning it, adds to the importance of Daniel. You know, the fact that Jesus talked about some of his unfulfilled prophecies, though, after 165, that abomination of desolation, that's an after 165 part of Daniel. And that Jesus referred to that often enough that it made it into all three of the gospels, you know, um, that, that makes it Daniel significant to me. And that makes me not really worry so much about the fact that we the stuff after 165 doesn't really make as much sense because I suspect it is unfulfilled prophecy but it nails Daniel we are going to get to a part where he absolutely nails the time of Christ and predicts when that will be So Daniel would have been important, not just to Jesus, but to the people. Yes. And well known to the people. Yes. Yes. So Daniel is a huge, big deal. We're going to get to another prophet, um, Ezekiel, next week, I think. Um, And and his, his, uh, he writes apocalyptically also. And his prophecies are not studied anywhere near as much as Daniel's. 
it's very interesting. I have a uh, question backing up to Daniel being important to the Jesus times prophecies. Mm-hmm. How would that have settled with the Hebrew people who didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah? Well, the context that Jesus was talking in, um, clearly he's always talking to a mixed bag of folks, but he was speaking at a time when um, tensions between Rome and the the Hebrews were, the Israelites were reaching boiling point. Like there during that time, other, quote, messiahs had shown up to try to overthrow the Roman government. And so Jesus is speaking to that because the people are are suffering. The people are desperate for a savior to save them from Rome. And Jesus, and they ask Jesus, they say, so when, when is it going to happen? We want to nail you down. We're not going to let go of you until you, till you tell us the date. And Jesus said, watch for when the abomination of desolation gets set up in the temple. At, when you see that happen, run for the hills. Said, drop whatever you're doing and run for the hills. So Jesus was speaking in answer to a political question, actually. Thank you. I I had another question. Um, Earlier in your talk, you were talking about, and and I'll butcher this wonderfully for you, (laughs) but hopefully you can get the pieces and put it together for me. When you were talking about how the first exile, they carried off the... Like the royals. and And the tradesmen and... That was the second one. They started with the royals and then kind of got down into the more skilled workers. And then they left the rest behind. And those are the ones that are not going, they're going to be destroyed. It seems like, wow, that's really not cool because you're not taking care of the people who can't take care of themselves. To me, that would be the elderly or the very young the people without the skills and trade. And then what did they do that they're going to be destroyed? I know, right? But apparently there were not 10 good men in Jerusalem, you know, to put a phrase to it. Um, the, it apparently it was, getting, it was to the Sodom and Gomorrah level of, of problem. Oh, okay. And um, so much like when a country gets taken over and then everybody pulls out all that corruption and stuff that was being held down comes to the forefront. Right. Right. So that That makes sense, you know, and and clearly and Jeremiah was one of those left behind. So clearly, you know, I would expect there were other prophets that we just don't have their record of that were also left behind because the Lord had work for them to do. You know, um, I think there were ordinary people left behind because the Lord had work for them to do to try to save the others. But the main um, message here that we're reading in the story, you know, I'm not making judgment calls about it. This is just what we're reading in the story is that the Lord made sure 
that the people he wanted to preserve were among those who got taken to Babylon. And that the other people are like scrambling around trying to figure out what they're going to do, who's going to save them. They're running to Egypt. A lot of them go to Egypt, you know. But in some of the prophecies we read, even in this class, where the Lord talks about how he's going to restore, he doesn't just talk about bringing back the exiles from Babylon, which he says he's going to do in 70 years. He talks about bringing them back from all the places where they've been scattered. So the Lord's eye is on all his people everywhere, even the ones from Israel, you know, who got scattered all over. I don't think it is an easy answer, Julia. I think we're talking at a macro level. I think individual stories will vary. I think individuals at this point are caught up in the winds of change that are blowing through the nations. And it's not unlike the issue that we as, quote, good people get sick. We get cancer. We suffer. Horrific things happen to us. And that doesn't mean God has forsaken us. That's just the same way as it means if you got rich all of a sudden, it didn't mean God blessed you any better, that you're any better than anybody else, you know? It's, it's what God promises is to be with us if we want him to, because God desperately wants to be with us. And that's all I've got today.